scripture text this evening is uh, John chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. So if you want to join with me in turning in your Bibles to John chapter 3. So we continue our study through gospel according to John. So we are in John chapter 3, verse 22 through the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. One who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Graduation ceremonies typically consist of several movements. There is the procession of the entire graduating class into the auditorium or seating area. Usually there is musical accompaniment. Uh, The students are seated, and after various speeches and other formalities, the students individually will walk forward to receive their diplomas. And then the program ends with a recessional as the students make their way in an orderly way out of the auditorium. This also is usually accompanied with music. You can also recognize that there is typically a recessional at weddings as the bride and groom and the groomsmen and bridesmaids exit the ceremony. And even our worship services end with a recessional of sorts as I exit the pulpit on the last song. This evening, I direct your attention to this custom of a recessional. Technically, a recessional is the music itself at the end of a service or program. But what is inevitably going on as that recessional is playing is that people are exiting. And that recessional signals that the service or program is done. It's now time for people to leave the facility in an orderly way. I think this serves as an illustration of John the Baptist's relationship with Jesus. William Hendrickson, a Reformed commentator, is to be credited with coming up with the wording 
John the Baptist's recessional, which is the wording that I'm using for the theme of these verses. This wording appropriately brings to mind John the Baptist slowly exiting the scene. Now, he's had an important role as the forerunner of Christ. He is to be honored for the role that he's had. At the same time, his role is coming to an end, and it's time for him to step down. His goal all along has not been to to lead people to believe in himself, but to believe in Jesus as the Christ. And now that Jesus has come on the scene and Jesus' ministry is beginning to gain traction, John begins his exit. Perhaps surprising is that he is glad to recede into the background. He doesn't immediately disappear into the woodwork, but he nevertheless steps back and away in order that people's attention would be drawn to Jesus. The goal is Jesus' glory. John the Baptist rightly sees himself as a means to an end, and the end is not his own glory. The end is Jesus receiving the following and the glory that he deserves. There's naturally application here concerning the motives in ministry, but all of us um, serve Christ in our own way, in, in the way that the Lord has assigned to us. And we also, we all exist to glorify Jesus Christ. And so I've taken as the theme of these verses, John the Baptist's recessional, and we are going to consider this, this uh, theme under two points, what and why. Our, our, our text this, this evening opens with John the Baptist facing a situation that had the potential to tempt him into not receding. There are many times in our daily lives when we are being faced with temptations, and most of the time, I don't think we even realize it. That's exactly, of course, what the devil wants. He doesn't make a personal appearance. He doesn't openly call us to disobey God. That would be far too obvious. His tactics are much more subtle and deceptive than that. His hope that we, is that we will not even recognize that we are being challenged spiritually. And as a result, we won't have our guard up and then we'll easily give in to sin without even knowing it. For example, you have made plans for the day and then the weather ruins them. You pray for healing for yourself or for a loved one and things get worse. You don't get a good night's rest. Uh, something that you find very valuable is destroyed. A coworker doesn't do his part and leaves you with extra work. An appliance breaks, your car needs repair, a friend is rude, someone lets you down. There are a whole host of, of things like this that can happen even throughout the very same day, and the temptation is to become angry, to complain, even to lash out and to do things that voice your frustration. Your calling is to trust God's providence. Your calling is to roll with the punches and to respond in love to those who mistreat you. And yet the temptation is to do the opposite. And many times in a day, you and I are being tested. And the question that is being evaluated is, are we people of faith or are we frustrated victims? Are we joyful people who know that all things are working together for our good or angry people who cannot believe that God and other people would treat us the way that they do? If you think about it, the larger question that lies behind the temptations in these situations is, where do I fit in? What is my role in this world? Am I here for God and the world to serve me? 
Too often the challenges of life become occasions of sin because of our ingrained selfishness. We think we deserve better than what we are getting, and we think this because we consider ourselves to be worthy of being served and blessed by God and the people around us. And when we don't get the attention that we feel we deserve, we become angry, which makes it clear that ultimately it is self-centeredness that accounts for our being angry with God and others. Now, there's certainly righteous anger where we are angry for God's cause and the cause of justice. So we think of, of justice for ourselves and others. It's good to be appalled by unrighteousness and to respond to it, though, in godly ways, such as speaking the truth in love, gently and with grace. Righteous anger means that you work at fixing the problem at hand in helpful, godly, and wise ways. But our angry, anger is sinful most of the time because we are angry for our cause. And you know that it is ungodly anger if you are throwing a tantrum. And when this happens, our actions and our words are all about frustration over how we are not at the center of the universe with everyone and everything serving our desires. That's the kind of temptation that John the Baptist faced. It came in the form of a report from his disciples John was there busy baptizing at a location that's unknown to us, but it's believed to have been west of the Jordan River. And if you are familiar at all with the regions of of Palestine in Jesus' day, there was Samaria, there was Perea, there was Decapolis. Well, right at at the juncture of those regions, with Galilee very close just by to the north, we believe that that's the location where John the Baptist is is there baptizing. Um, We know that there is there a group of seven springs, which probably accounts for the reference in our text to the fact that the place there had plentiful water. And so John was baptizing at this place called Anon. Meanwhile, Jesus was also baptizing. Now what we learn later in chapter 4, verse 2 you want to look there, even it's just a few verses down, it says there very clearly that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Yet in our text, it says Jesus baptized, which means simply that he was doing it by means of his disciples. He was overseeing, he was endorsing what they were doing in his name. And so we have this parallel ministry going on with both John and Jesus involved in this religious ceremony pointing to the need for spiritual cleansing. So this is what's going on behind the scenes when some of John's disciples have this discussion. We might think of it more as a dispute with a Jew over purification. They wonder, well, what's this purification thing? Well, the word purification here refers to ceremonial washing. It's actually the very same word used back in chapter 2 in connection with the miracle of the changing of water into wine there at the wedding in Cana. The word is used in reference to those stone jars that had water in them that the Jews would use in their hand-washing ceremonies of purification. We are told that the dispute between John's disciples and this Jew arose over the issue of purification. Now, we're not sure what that discussion involved exactly. Um, Probably this Jew was calling into question what John and Jesus were doing. Um, The water baptism of these men was not something endorsed by the religious leaders of that day, was not part of the established traditional way of doing things. It's 
It's been suggested that the Jew was defending Jesus' baptism as superior to that of John's, but that's a guess. We do know something prompted these disciples of John to think about Jesus and to think of him as a threat to their master. Some suggest that the Jew was not defending Jesus, but rather the old established practices supported by the religious establishment, and in the process was calling John's ministry into question, which then became the occasion for John's followers to think about the future of John's ministry. Uh, They were recognizing this, this growing opposition from the Jews. And at the same time, though, John does have clearly people coming to him for baptism. John's disciples have been taking note. They've been counting the numbers Um, and they've noticed that John is not getting the numbers that Jesus is getting. And so John's ministry is diminishing while it appears Jesus' ministry is thriving, and they do not like it. Envious for the reputation of John, they tattle to John about Jesus. Verse 26, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing in all are going to him. This exaggeration of saying all are going to Jesus indicates a level of frustration over Jesus' success. They tell this to John, apparently expecting him to pick up on their angst and to join them in it. And this is when, you see, John faces temptation. I'm reminded of the time when Peter is motivated, yes, motivated by loving concern, um, a, a godly concern for Jesus, and yet, Nevertheless, he becomes a source of temptation to Jesus. He tells Jesus that he's not going to suffer, he's not going to die. And Jesus sees Peter's words as a temptation, that he, that he shy away from his calling, which is to go to the cross. And he says in response to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He sees Peter's words really as ultimately from Satan, a temptation. Well, thankfully, John sees the danger in what his disciples are saying to him. And he explains to them that it was always his role to exalt Christ. His goal was never to become a powerful religious figure with his own following. Reminds his disciples first that he has consistently said in the past, notice verse 28, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. If we go back to what the Apostle John has told us in chapter 1, he has already talked about John the Baptist there in verses 6 through 8. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now that's the Apostle John's assessment. But then did John the Baptist share the same perspective? Well, John the Baptist is recorded in chapter 1, verse 15, as bearing witness about Jesus and crying out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And then we have in verses 19 and following a record of the testimony of John, when the religious leaders asked John who he was. He readily confessed, I am not the Christ. He explained further that he was not Elijah, he was, he, he's not the prophet, but the one predicted by Isaiah who would go before the Messiah and prepare his way. And he went on to explain that he's not even worthy to untie the strap of the sandal of he who comes after him. The next day it was, it was that Jesus was 
coming toward him. And John announced, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he repeated what he had been saying all along about Jesus. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day he introduces Jesus again with the words, Behold the Lamb of God. And now weeks later with John's disciples upset about Jesus' growing following, John reminds them of what he has always said as part of his testimony, that he is not the Christ, but was sent before him. Again, he's the the forerunner predicted by Isaiah, the one sent to draw people to faith in the Christ. And uh, John uses, in fact, an illustration to explain his relationship to Jesus. He says, Jesus is like the bridegroom. He is like the best man. And in a wedding ceremony, the bride belongs to the bridegroom and, and, and is brought to the bridegroom. The best man doesn't stand in the way of the relationship of the bridegroom and his bride, but rather the purpose of the best man, and in fact, his desire is to bring them together. His, his job is to ensure that the wedding ceremony goes forward without a hitch. And when he is able to stand with the bridegroom and to hear him make his vows to his bride, and he hears the rejoicing in his bridegroom's voice, that's what makes him happy. That's why he's there. He's not there to draw attention to himself. He's not there to take the bride to himself. He's there to facilitate the marriage of the bridegroom to his bride, and he's happy to have that role. And uh, John the Baptist applies this analogy to himself. He says, therefore, That is because I am the best man rejoicing in the joy of the bridegroom. This joy of mine is now complete. So in this illustration of Jesus as the bridegroom, the bride, of course, stands for his people. The bride is the church. It's those who believe in him, who follow him as disciples. And so when John hears of people following after Jesus, this is essentially Jesus receiving his bride. And as the best man, John is glad. John has known and has welcomed all along this plan, this plan of God that Jesus must increase while John decreases. And John's joy is complete in knowing that his ministry has been successful because it has led people to Jesus. Now the reasons, we come to why now, the, the reasons for John the Baptist's recessional are several. Uh, John begins by highlighting a principle that is involved, but mostly he points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In verse 27, John sets forth the principle that his disciples need to hear, and the principle is the antidote to all of their envy. The principle is stated this way, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Anything that we have is a gift from God. Life itself, food and drink, clothing, and a home and support of that life, 
work, school, sports, the opportunity as well as the ability to do the things that are required of us in our daily lives, family and friends, any wealth to buy the things that we need. Now, it would seem that based on the context that John is especially thinking of any and every position that we have as God's people in the kingdom of God, any role that you play in the church, whatever it may be, whether considered lowly or prestigious, any role is received as a gift from God. And that perspective, of course, certainly lines up with what we read elsewhere in Scripture. So in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul is admonishing people in the church who have been focusing on their differences, and they have done so in a way leading to envy and quarreling. And he says there in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you different? And of course, the implied answer is it's God, right? God has made us different. And he goes on to say, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So John the Baptist apparently agreed with this perspective, and he hoped that his disciples would come to share it. Now, John had not heard uh, the the disciples, uh, the, uh, the, the parables that the Lord would have for his disciples that have to do with service in the kingdom of God and the parables concerning gifts and, and talents and being wise stewards of these things. But John the Baptist would have agreed with them. There's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, where some workers work for many hours through the heat of the day, while others for just a short while at the end of the day, and they all end up being paid exactly the same. The ones who work for many hours are upset. And the owner of the vineyard points out that they agreed to work for what they received. And he has the right to be generous if he desires. Which brings out that it's the Lord who is in charge of our service in his kingdom. There's the parable of the talents where some servants are entrusted with more talents than others. These talents standing for your position and your level of responsibility that he has given you in the work of the kingdom God distributes different numbers of talents to different people, and yet everyone is called to be fruitful with what he has been given. Different stations in life, different potentials exist for all of God's people, and what he wants is faithfulness. What he doesn't want is jealousy and quarreling due to comparisons being made that are all rooted in self-centeredness. He wants you to be thankful that you have a role to play and to be faithful in doing your part. The Apostle Paul will also explain in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as well as in Ephesians 4, that each of you, as a member of the body of Christ, has a unique role to play in the advancing of Christ's kingdom. Some of you will have a role that stands out and is therefore naturally attractive to those whose goal is personal prestige. Others have a role that seems perhaps boring and unimportant, but Paul will say that the members who appear to be weaker are actually indispensable, and that those parts of the body we think are less honorable are actually worthy of greater honor. And his goal is that we trust God's assignments, and that we understand that God has designed things so that the seemingly great are given less honor and the seemingly low are given more honor, so that in the end, everyone is to be appreciated for what they do, and everyone is to appreciate what they do. 
John was ahead of his day in understanding these things. He saw himself as a servant who existed to promote Christ. His goal was that people would believe in Jesus, and it didn't matter what that meant for him personally. His thinking that it was a privilege to serve Christ, and that ought to be our perspective as well. To serve Christ, is it implies that we belong to him, which requires the work of regeneration and the gift of faith that only God can give and that he gives by grace. To have any place of service in the kingdom of God implies that we're saved from the wrath of God, that we've been reconciled to him through Christ. And that is not something to be taken for granted. What we deserve is to be left to ourselves. Think of it, to, to just live out of our sin nature so that all we want is to exalt ourselves. Without God's grace, life would be all about the pursuit of the things of this world. You would be pursuing things of this world that you believe will make you happy. And people would be viewed as means to your ends. And, that, and of course, then that's how they would also see you. And so your life would be filled with quarreling and, and trying to destroy one another. Even worse, we would end up at the end of our lives looking back at a life of vanity. And all that would be left is for us to experience the agony of death and hell as punishment for our sins. If you think about these things and you realize what Christ has done for you, you should be thankful that God has delivered you from this worthless way of life. He's given us new life in Christ so that our character, our desires, our values have been transformed from being centered in self to being centered in God's glory. And this perspective, of course, is rooted in a proper understanding of who we are in relation to Jesus Christ. Notice how John understands Jesus is infinitely above us. He is God. Now, it's possible that verses 31 and following, if you look at that paragraph that takes us to the end of of chapter 3. It's possible that those are the words of the Apostle John, but there's really no break in the thought from verse 30 where John the Baptist is talking, and I believe that chapter 3 actually ends here um, with John the Baptist. These are his words, giving the reasons why all of the glory is to go to Jesus Christ. And what stands out is John's knowledge that he is a mere man. He is of the earth. He belongs to the earth. He speaks in an earthly way, only speaking of those things that have been revealed to him from God, while Jesus is so much more. He comes from above. He comes from heaven, and he is therefore above all. And Jesus is able to bear witness to what he has actually seen and heard in the courts of heaven. He is the one whom God has sent he therefore utters the very words of God. And to receive his testimony is to agree that God is true. Therefore, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Now, of course, all of the prophets of God, all of God's messengers received the Holy Spirit in, in a certain measure, the measure that was necessary for them to be able to do their work. Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. The plan of salvation is grounded in the love of God for his son and the desire that all things be given into his hand. What brings pleasure to God the Father is to see his son ruling in authority over his people. And to that end, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son 
does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so John the Baptist sees himself as something much larger than himself. To serve the cause of the Son is really to align oneself with the purposes of the Trinity. Here we have insight into the Father who loves the Son and yet sends the Son from heaven to earth to bear witness to God's plan of salvation, this plan decreed from eternity. And the Son is given and he comes to this earth in order to be lifted up on the cross as the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. And as painful and difficult as that saving work was, it was the love of the Father that was behind this sending. And his love was not only a gracious, saving love for us as part of a world of rebellious sinners, but ironically, also and primarily, a love for his son. For the goal was that all things would be given into his hand. In the way of his suffering and death, Jesus would become the king of kings, Lord of lords, the judge of all mankind, the one who is to be obeyed by all mankind, the one who will judge in wrath all who refuse to receive his testimony and put their faith in him. And so the love of the Father is a love that longs to see his son Jesus glorified as the Messiah King and Savior of sinners. We also have the third person of the Trinity represented here, the Holy Spirit also working to see that Jesus the Son is glorified. He is given to Jesus to enable him to do his ministry as well as uh, his, his work of drawing sinners to Christ by working in them the new birth and faith. John's perspective is, you see, to be amazed, to be thankful for his role in exalting Christ. His desire always was that people would be drawn to Christ in faith. John knew that he couldn't save anybody. He baptized sinners as a way to point them to the need for the cleansing of sin, a cleansing that only Jesus, the true Lamb of God, could provide. And I'll also point out that Jesus didn't perform baptisms himself because he was the reality to which baptism pointed. But John knew his own place. What about you? What, what is your attitude? Are you happy with the roles, the, the, the talents that God has given you? Are you content to decrease as long as Christ increases? And the way Christ increases is by people submitting to his lordship, listening to him, trusting in him, serving him, believing in him unto eternal life. And may you and I follow the example of John the Baptist by rejoicing in what brings joy to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for a place in your kingdom. Oh, Father, we do not deserve to be your people. We do not deserve to have a role. We do not deserve to be servants of the Lord Jesus. We are not worthy to even untie the, the sandal of his foot. Father, we are... Uh, in and of ourselves sinners, worthy of your wrath and condemnation. But we thank you, Father, for bringing us to yourself. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you for sending Jesus, to whom we are reconciled to you. And, uh, Father, we pray that we would be so overwhelmed by a sense of 
the graciousness of you giving a place in your kingdom that we would seek to serve you in all that we do. We pray, Lord, that our goal would be to see Christ glorified, to see people turning to him, trusting in him, serving him. May we see our role as but subservient to the glory of our Savior. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we are self-centered, seeking the glory that is to belong to Christ, seeking the praise of men, um, seeking a place and position of prestige, or so we, we consider it. But Father, we, we thank you that in even the, the highest positions within your kingdom, really we are but unworthy servants just doing our duty. And Father, we pray that for those who might consider their positions to be lowly, that Lord, they would recognize that they have been given an important role for all of us are called to serve and are called to make a difference and can by your grace. And so Father, use us. May we be useful instruments in your hands, especially as we humbly serve you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.